to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster planning, uh, security, cybersecurity, emergency management, COVID, resilience, anything that's relatable to those subjects. Speaking of which, if there is a subject uh, you'd like to talk about on the show or like us to talk about on the show, please go to the Voice America webpage for the show, and at the bottom of the graphic, there is a little button. It says send the host an email. I do get all emails and I do respond to everything. If you want to uh, advertise or talk about a product or service, um, I can get you some information on that as well. Send me an email the same way. I'd like to thank everybody at Stone Road um, for their uh, sponsorship of today's episode and their product, BoastAssessment.com, which allows you to do some self-assessments, you know, how you've done your BIA, your risks, your testing, et cetera, and find out, you know, uh, on your own scale how you're, how you're doing and allow you to focus your resources accordingly. And I'd like to remind everyone, uh, if you aren't aware yet, that uh, to check out the new Preparing for the Unexpected YouTube channel, um, just launched on uh, November 19th. So uh, check out some uh, videos there, and uh, as time goes by, there'll be obviously a lot more there. So you'll actually get to see some of the people that I'll be talking to uh, going forward. For longtime listeners, you'll know that I talked about the Continuity and Resilience Today conference uh, for quite some time, that I'd be speaking and uh, hopefully getting some of the speakers from that conference on the show to come and talk about their, their topic or something else. And today is no different. I was able to, uh, sec- well, I'll use the word secure somebody who actually talked about security. So I'd like to welcome to the show today, Ray, I almost said it the north, the non-French way, Ray Brover. Ray, hey, welcome to the show. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, it's, uh, the weather's not too bad today. All that freezing cold wind has gone, finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I can't say that, it, uh, at least where I'm sitting here in Ottawa, that uh, things are particularly uh, bright and beautiful, but uh, no issue at all. It, it is that Canadian experience. It is the month of November. Yes, where anything happens. <laughs> <laughs> now, as I mentioned, you were at the uh, CRT conference. You presented there. And um, so I know, uh, you know, I've seen your, your bio and we, we've sent a couple of emails back and forth. So I know a little bit about you. Um, considering we have listeners literally around the globe, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, certainly. My name is Ray Boisvert. I am uh, the Associate Partner for Security at IBM Security, and my area of responsibility is the public sectors across Canada. But previously, uh, I have, uh, I'm a national security and national intelligence practitioner I spent most of my career, about 33 years, at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, also known as CSIS, and um, I left in 2012 as the assistant director. I was responsible for the intelligence assessment uh, area, 
And part of that, I've done a number of things at CSIS from being responsible for the counterterrorism program for Canada to uh, um, managing uh, our areas of um, covert operations, digital uh, discovery, and other things. And I, more and more recently, before I joined IBM, I was the first security advisor appointed to the province of Ontario, where I was an associate deputy minister giving advice to the cabinet office on on how to make that area of subnational jurisdiction in Canada, being its largest province and most populous and um, most uh, economically important province, uh, far more resilient, including for cybersecurity and other matters. Well, I definitely got a knowledgeable uh, person on security then for sure on the show today. So welcome, Ray. I'm glad you could uh, share your time and expertise with us today. No, my pleasure. Now, your presentation uh, at CRT, um, when I read the title, it's going to sound like it's only for one country, but I've got a feeling that this kind of touches on more than just Canada. Your title was Threats to Canada's Influence and Leadership in the World, From Social Cohesion to National Security and Economic Prosperity. But I think going through your presentation, correct me if I'm wrong, some of the things you're going to talk about today are, aren't just Canadian-focused. They could be other you know, cybersecurity is uh, not just a Canadian item, right? No, absolutely not. No, it is a it's a global issue. Um, by its very nature of the technology itself, it's ubiquitous, it's pervasive, it stretches around the globe, and uh, it's not just the idea of the. Um, you know, if you think back on earlier in history when ARPANET was first constructed by the U.S. military, uh, which was the predecessor to the internet as we know it today. It was meant to be, in fact, a, a resilience-focused uh, system in, in times of, of national emergency or some catastrophic event. Of course, this was intended to be that, that piece of resilience in um, you know, unexpected times. Um, so it, um, it, it obviously became transformed. It became democratized. became, again, the same sort of ubiquitous as everywhere. A uh, few people who are listening to this show can even imagine their lives five years ago without everything from our email and social media and mapping and everything else that has completely infused and sort of welded to our personal and professional lives. And that oh. is the new reality. Oh yeah. I, I, my nieces cannot imagine the world without the internet, you know, and their, their iPads and their, you know, tablets and all this. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And there's a, of course, with all that has been a duality, right? Duality of benefits and of course, the uh, prevalence or the the delivery of a number of risks and threats around that, because like all good things, wherever there's innovation, there's people out there who who look to turn that innovation uh, against itself or against its users, and for uh, malevolent or nefarious purposes, and hence the issue of cyber threats and why they're important, how they affect uh, people's privacy at the individual level affects corporations and the abilities of governments to deliver services, irrespective of where you live. Now, you talk about that in your presentation. You, one of your headings is institutions under attack. Well, what kind of institutions need to be concerned about any kind of cyber attack? Any institution that really um, is outward facing. In other words, if you're connected to the Internet, which I'm going to make a wild assumption here, Alec, that that's probably 99.9% .9 of them. Um, they are they are facing uh, both that duality of benefits or opportunities and threats. So they're able to reach people uh, seamlessly and without borders. 
uh, for the most part. I mean, we're seeing a bit more of uh, changes in the way the initial concept of the internet has evolved in the last 20 years to seeing it uh, far more balkanized potentially because some areas, some countries are putting up walls now around internet. But generally speaking, unless you're involved in what they would deem, the regime would deem as contentious information, uh, you can pretty well serve or attract an audience uh, from anywhere. So all institutions uh, would fit into the category of those that are potentially vulnerable to a cyber attack. Now, you mentioned um, in one of our communications in an email, uh, just to kind of touch on one of the things you just said, that um, you you said, and I'm I'm just going to read this, you know, um, uh, where is it? Uh, Threat actors are targeting the fundamentals of what has sustained our open democratic rules-based and free market-oriented democracies. Are we the only ones, like, you know, democratic nations like Canada, you know, uh, and uh, UK, et cetera, are we the only ones experiencing these cyber attacks? Uh, No, I guess it comes down to then parsing it out as to what, you know, what are the motives, like what's the intent behind the attacks? Um, All sectors of the economy and all sectors of our of our lives, and that includes going back to said earlier about our personal lives and having, you know, our privacy uh, being uh, in, encroached upon, or in fact, being in some cases, our uh, um, our personal uh, identities being stolen, to the fact that governments are fending off a lot of uh, scams and um, various things that are either impersonating a new government program and trying to get you to click in and provide uh, personal identifiable information or trying to seed uh, misinformation, uh, maybe telling you that your your election polling station is somewhere where it actually isn't, uh, or maybe it's about influencing you about a uh, critical uh, matter, so everything from uh, medical um, or health-related issues like vaccinations to um, trust in our institutions and and maybe sometimes you can see them against certain companies. Companies have sometimes hired hackers in some parts of the world to malign their competitors. So there's a whole bunch of things. It comes down to what the attacker's motives are, which type of business or organization institution they represent. So if we break that down a little bit, you, you can easily sort of see where there are state-level actors, in other words, countries that have cyber people. And they could be part of the military, they could be part of the intelligence or policing or some other types of um, organizations within government. Uh, they often use proxies as well, so they use people who they hire who are not part of government. And then you have like the second biggest group would be criminal groups, uh, organized criminal syndicates around the globe who have turned to cybercrime um, almost exclusively, and that covers everything from street gangs to the, uh, the stuff of movie-making uh, material of um, you know ethically based um, the groups that have been uh, been sort of portrayed in, in movies over the years and who go after people and are and with some thuggery, all that kind of stuff has now moved online because it's low risk and high yield. And then thirdly, you can have groups that are just simply politically motivated. They could be what some are referred to as hacktivists. So they have an activist um, ideology, but they find, of course, the internet becomes the most effective way to pursue what they need to do. You have um, you have sort of what they call adventurers, which would be the fourth group. Those are individuals who sometimes are just, they find the internet fascinating. You know, you've heard everything from script kiddies or just young people learn how to mm-hmm. write malicious script and they just hack into place because it's a game. 
and some do it as well, just as loners and whatever. There's a whole bunch of other submotors to that, but that probably completely categorizes the, at least the big food groups. And then from there is what are they attacking and why? And well, if you're a criminal, you, you're probably pretty agnostic, but you usually go where the money is, right? It's the old yeah. um, Willie uh, Willie Sutton, uh, famous bank robber from the United States in the in the in the Depression era, 1930s. You know why do you rob banks? Because well, that's where the money is. And yeah. and then of course there's a there's a bit of a mix and all in between. So it is around the globe. But let me just finish off with this thought because going back to my premise and my my statement to you is that um, what is the the latest iteration of threats and risks. And it's not strictly about money. It's not strictly about intellectual property or stealing secrets. It's around dis- disinformation. It's about influencing campaigns and so on. And that's the biggest challenge to uh, democratic institutions. And, and that can undermine uh, response to crises and, and special events or to emergency-related events wherein, if, for example, uh, a natural disaster um, Perhaps uh, something worse could be something accidental from a chemical spill to, to something even worse where, you know, we were in a, a moment of heightened uh, military tensions in other country as it is the way in some parts of the world. What happens when you're not sure about what you're reading or hearing online is accurate? And should you flee or are you supposed to take shelter or are you supposed to be uh, thinking about other options? Is is that part of the reason why people do it? Is so that it seeds confusion, so that uh, others can kind of go behind the scenes and do what they want because they've redirected um, people. Sometimes, for sure, we've noticed that IBM, for example, we have a great professional hacking team called X Force Red, and they um, they are uh, extremely skilled, and uh, they work with our security operations centers. We have nine around the globe. We see about seventy billion security incidents a day. Uh, how, how many? 70 billion with a B. Wow. And that number's growing all the time. And with that, and with our hacking teams, which they use all that to enrich their knowledge and, and they use that to, to test systems, they would probably say, yeah, yes, and, you know, people do use these, um, you know, they might call them military feints or uh, distraction uh, operations to try to uh, create a bit of interest in one area. And so in other words, you might want to sort of fake an attack on one spot so that you can actually go through the back door on the other side. So no doubt that could be part of it. But for the most part, quite often, um, it's about simply, this is where uh, nation states or countries are basically engaging now in what they call the fifth dimension of warfare. So as your listeners would know, you, know, you go back through history of the first dimension, which was, um, land-based army warfare. Second was battles of the seas, and the third was uh, air, you know, air domain. The fourth was space, and now the fifth is digital, and it's the realm of cyber. And so, countries are now competing against the others, and they'd like to sometimes. Some countries have been dis- accused of being just solely focused on that, disrupting, disrupting democracies, especially because they want to see us fail. But it goes well beyond that as well. Well, I can understand, you know, you want to see an enemy fail. I can understand that perspective. However, you you know, you mentioned earlier that sometimes it's not all about money. So if they want us to fail, is it because they want something else as a result of it? Or, you know, is there some ulterior, you know, if they're not going after money and they don't want democracy to succeed, so to speak, 
then what is it do they really want at the end of the day? What they really want ultimately at the end of the day, and again, it depends again on the group and the motive. Um, let's just say that in some ways, and if, if we just take the nation state uh, group of uh, adversaries, um, they'll want to obviously disrupt and undermine people's confidence in government institutions and their abilities to come to the aid or assistance or simply just to provide everyday government services we come to depend on. But increasingly, as, and as was just recently communicated by, the, um, by Canada's Signals Intelligence Security Agency called the Communications, Exter- uh, the Communications Security Establishment, or the CSE, uh, which is similar to the United States, uh, is, would be the NSA, the National Security Agency. The effort there, as they're describing, is that there are a number of nation states that are probing and surveying and doing reconnaissance and looking to find weaknesses in the critical infrastructure that's related to energy. So we know that's everything from what keeps the lights on, it's what provides fuel at the pumps, it's all those things, including nuclear power plants and so on. So in a world of fifth-dimensional warfare, um, there are, the benefits uh, are, are innumerable because, for example, mm-hmm. one, you can have deniability. It's great operating online because it's easier to mask who's doing certain things. It's very cheap, extremely inexpensive. Hence, a lot of countries spend a lot of money to hire tens of thousands of people to do it. And then ultimately, uh, the stealth factor is, uh, and the ability to get into places is, uh, is most significant. So when you take that together and you, you look at the ability to be able to pre-plan an incident, pre-plan a strike, and that strike could be just simply uh, on an escalating scale to say, we're going to turn out the lights in, your, in this city for a while or this country to communicate a message. So you can, you can message out in certain areas or if it was an event and you know, hopefully... And this is where people talked about the mutually assured destruction doctrine or MAD and, and how we now have a digitized version of that. Wherein before we were worried about a nuclear strike, now, of course, military and civil defense and other planners worry about that digital Pearl Harbor as a former U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, first characterized about uh, probably getting close to 10 years ago. So that is always out there as a possibility. And on that note? We've come to the end of our first segment. Today, we are talking with Ray Boisvert, security expert at IBM, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, 
self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Are you ready for a shakeup in your online entertainment? Then listen for the Information Edge with Darren Yancey. It's time to take a fresh look at the politics of our economy and its impact on you. Darren and his guests will explain these rights, legislation, and observations in sectors that affect people around the world every day. Imagine a podcast that makes you stop and think. That's the Information Edge. Tune in every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Central, and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with security expert from IBM, Ray Boisvert. Uh, Ray, uh, you were talking about the speed of uh, things and how they're changing, like that 70 billion you know, hacks noticed by an IBM team in one day, it just, just freaks me out. So, you know, knowing that uh, things change so fast, how, do, how can we stay on top of that? You know, and if it's difficult for us to stay on top of things, how are criminals staying on top of it? You know, are they setting the pace? You know, what, what's, what's, what's happening here? Well, certainly um, the cyber criminal world has benefited from a lot of things, including reinvestment. When you look at the trillions of dollars that have been stolen through online fraud and other things, um, the numbers are quite staggering there, too. It all depends on uh, which source you uh, – but there's certainly always in those trillions of dollars. And you, you – now, it's not one amorphous group. There's people everywhere, and they're, they're not all aligned, but they do get to share in a lot of, a lot of ill-gotten um, profits – and then also, you may recall, your listeners will uh, perhaps remember some of the stories of some of the best cybersecurity hacking tools by the national security uh, teams in, and, uh, in one country ended up being stolen. And um, so that's being you know, repurposed now by criminals. And you've got areas of the world, too, where uh, kleptocracies exist. In other words, where um, it's basically uh, you know, a band of thieves that run the country. And, of course, then they have their security agencies work with local criminals and they share their knowledge and, and, and in reverse, the, the criminals share the profits with, with the kleptocracy and the, uh, and the security folks and so on. So, as a result, you have a very highly and ever more empowered group of uh, adversaries out there and they're highly motivated and uh, they live in some ways. It's, it's not unreasonable to say that they are... Um, they are completely outside the law, that um, they are basically immune from prosecution in some ways because they're protected by many countries as well. And so traditional law enforcement approaches are just not uh, not available to us uh, compared to, let's say, 20 years ago, typically before the Internet, especially going back 30 plus years ago, or at least before cybercrime, uh, most investigations were local, national at worst, with a few international but usually involving the collaboration of uh, police forces. 
So the world has changed that way. So the um, the offense being the adversaries certainly have a lot of advantages. The defenders, though, have gotten a lot better. And I'll take you through our playbook. And at IBM Security, for example, we are very clear around their three very straight-up pillars to be better at this. Job one is threat management. You have to be able to own your environment. You have to be able, in other words, you have to be able to control it. Uh, sometimes that's done, though, ironically, through a contracted managed service, through a top-flight organization, that that's what they do, right? They weaken. What happens is most medium, even to large-size organizations, can never replicate, for example, what IBM Security does for ourselves. In our 350,000-plus employees, over 177 countries, I believe, at this point. And so nobody could replicate that easily. And then secondly, as part of our second pillar, is the issue of uh, digital trust. And that, to me, I say it in the middle because it's so, so important now increasingly. The issue of authentication, especially now in that pandemic world where a lot of people are working remotely, how one authenticates themselves to the network has become increasingly problematic and it's been super important to be able to get that part right. And now we're moving into a new world of uh, what we call zero trust environments. In other words, nobody is ever just simply trusted. We have privilege access management controls and a number of other things. And we're moving through this very unique thing called um, decentralized identity or self-sovereign identity, but that's that's a long story. And then thirdly, it's around this idea of where, how do you transform and continue to grow in a new hybrid cloud, multi-cloud environment. And that's where we're, um, that's where again, security gets amplified. But if it's mishandled all, and some companies do move to the cloud, and yet they don't think about the security, and they don't because they, they're wrongly assuming that the cloud provider has dealt with that for them. I was so just going to say that you know, if yeah. I hired a vendor, I'm assuming that the vendor's got the security in place. But obviously, from what you're saying, that's not necessarily true. No, it isn't. And so, what the other part is too, and if I take everything I've just said now about the prowess of those threat actors. The need for us to do things better, including simplifying and modernizing and aligning our, our strategies and, and different organizations to better protect ourselves holistically, it's the issue now that we have exceeded the ability of human beings to manage these threats. And this is where cognitive comes in. This is we're in the era of AI, artificial intelligence. And as we like to call it at IBM, augmented intelligence, because you know some people definitely abuse the term AI. But in the way we look at it is that you know, the human is always in the loop. It is always there to manage the progress. But the human is no longer drowning in alerts that mean nothing. With those 70 billion alerts I mentioned, the vast majority of those are not important. The problem is if somebody has to investigate each one, uh, the bad uh, or the adversaries end up taking advantage of those all those distractors and end up doing what they can do best, which is to distract and then find a way in with advanced persistent threats. So with this, I used to work on a a security and business continuity team many years ago. And the security guys, you know, they would have all these different tools in place to identify different threats and different things that were happening, you know, denial of service and all that kind of stuff. Is that not enough anymore? Is that where you're, is that what I'm understanding that that's, you know, that's child's play kind of stuff now? I know denial of service is certainly still a handy tool and it's still being used and it's used sometimes as, as a method to achieve a, a bigger objective. Again, it goes back to that issue of distractors, uh, but it's also sometimes just purposely done to take a company offline. I've read a story not that long ago where a telecommunications firm in, 
And an African country ended up using, uh, buying a denial of service attack. Because, of course, in the dark web with, with Bitcoin or even a credit card, you can pretty well buy any malware service or any malware technique and tradecraft and service provision. Uh, which, in other words, you don't have to do anything yourself. Somebody will just take somebody else offline. So they used a the DDoS to uh, knock off their competitor in, in the cellular telephone industry. So those kind of things happen. Um, the other, otherwise, though, when you think about this uh, type of stuff, though, too, is that the biggest challenge right now is ransomware, and that's where people are, uh, of course, clicking on a link. Somebody gets somebody's been, as your listeners know, the spear phishing technique or the phishing technique. Spear mm-hmm. phishing is, is just more tailored. In other words, they've done their homework. They know that I like a certain activity. It might be uh, I don't know, antique cars or motorcycles or. Uh, wines or, or single malt whiskeys or whatever the case may be and you'll you'll receive an email and you'll click it because it sounds like it's somebody that knows you and that would be a spear phishing otherwise for phishing people are clicking on links and then suddenly um, and increasingly in a really malicious way not only are they lurking in your network or lurking on your home network and before they pop up and commit ransomware they'll also go about and erase all your backups and then they'll present themselves and say, you know, you have to pay X number of Bitcoins in order to get the keys to decrypt all of your data. And that's happening now with ever uh, increasing efficiency. And as you've heard, and as many of your listeners have heard, there, it's also quite often sometimes a com- combination of random attacks and target attacks, and they're hitting healthcare centers at a height of a global pandemic. So you can see the motive for people to want to pay or try to resolve it, and increasing those, those areas of technology are sophisticated and hard to beat down. Now, I, I've got a question about that. I do want to touch on the AI thing, but uh, just to touch on what you just said, what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, if you are caught by a ransomware attack? I've, I've heard even people on this show, some are saying, yes, you know, pay. Some are saying, no, don't pay. What are your thoughts with your experience? How, how do you think that you know, people should address it? Well, as you know, I come from the security intelligence community, and uh, I, see, um, I see deep difficulty in paying ransoms uh, for any type of crime because, of course, it perpetuates the problem. You know, that's point one. Uh, there was a brand new uh, U.S. Treasury um, uh, advice issued recently, and it was very clear that all organizations, institutions, corporations should be very careful about the idea of paying ransom uh, to execute themselves from ransomware events, as they may be in violation of a number of laws, both in the United States and beyond. And, and whether it's um, whether it's financing terrorism legislation or uh, other types of uh, similar processes that are intended to uh, to squelch uh, unlawful transactions, uh, financial transactions. So it's extremely problematic. Um, the FBI, I know in the United States, and the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mount Police in Canada, definitely do not encourage the payment of ransomware. And I think if everybody does their homework, and part of that homework is the preparedness, having a good defense and doing what you can. It's no guarantee, of course, because we know some companies spend a lot of money on cybersecurity and still end up having a situation. But how you respond to that situation is the second part. And that's where I think organizations are now most measured and most CISOs, the, uh, you know, the, you know, the sort of the chief information security officer or even the chief information security officer, the CIO, are often now uh, measured on how well prepared were they and how did they respond to that ransomware. 
And so there's lots of um, lots of um, backup situations that need to be well tailored and well uh, curated. There are solutions, and certainly is really important to reach out to, to partners like IBM Security to say, hey, what is what is the best way to avoid this horrific situation and one which I don't want to pay ransomware? Well, that brings up another point. You know, what if uh, you know? I, I know you work with IBM, and you know you've you've worked with uh, governments and things like that. But I'm only a small or medium company. You know, I'm not one of these big conglomerates. You know, with offices around the world. What do I do? What do I need to consider? Well, there's a lot of things to be done, and there's a lot of low cost solutions as well. Um, there's even in most jurisdictions increasingly, and I know in Canada, for example, we have a new uh, um, Cybersecure Canada program that's rolling out that's, that's going to be providing a lot more direct advice um, and, uh, and providing some a new method to certify certain companies, whether it's small, medium, or large. If you can assure, if you can meet a certain standard uh, by going through a checklist and get that certified, uh, you, you can actually promote the fact that you're cyber secure, and uh, which will help obviously your transactions and commerce, uh, e-commerce especially, but you know all your points of presence online, and those things are good. Uh, most organizations, especially when you think of the of the, uh, of the Western advanced economies, ranging from Australia, New Zealand, the United States, Canada, uh, Europe, uh, the Nordics, UK. Um, all of those countries have security agencies like here in Canada with the CSC and the new Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, which is really intended to help small, medium-sized businesses and Canadian citizens uh, beat, uh, beat down those uh, risks around, um, uh, around fraud and around ransomware and all these sort of things. So, and all that information is free. So there are a number of things we can do to, uh, at that level to really reduce the risk. But you have to be aware of it. You have to be alive to it. And you have to take steps towards your prevention and your ability to respond. Well, see, I told you we were going to go off script and that I should start asking things as you start talking. You, you mentioned, you know, certified secure. So if I'm, uh, you know, small or medium business and, I, you know, I've got this certified secure, how, how do I keep that confidence knowing and this is going back to what you said earlier on regarding how fast things are changing. How do I know that you know I'm I'm certified secure now? So at a point in time I'm secure, but how do I know that you know in three weeks from now, you know I'm still secure if if things are changing so fast? Oh, like, is there a confidence question. issue somewhere? Well, maybe a confidence, but certainly a need uh, never to be complacent. Uh, we really have to focus mm-hmm. on the reality that we. Uh, we need to always question ourselves. You know, have we done enough? Have we done everything we sh- should have done? Have we um, have we evolved to meet the, the evolving challenges or meet the new challenges that evolve in our environment? Have there things that have occurred that changed the calculus? And and these are all things you don't have to spend if you're a small business with let's say under fifty people. You have to spend a lot of time on it. But I just had a conversation the other day with an organization, and I said, hey. Um, and this was a pretty small, medium-sized organization, just more somebody I knew. And I said, wait, every, you know, at least once a month, you should sit around the table as a, as a management team and say, hey, take 15 minutes, take five minutes, take an hour and say, how are we? How is our emergency preparedness? How is our continuity of operations looking? Uh, could we continue to operate if compromised? And what would that look like? And that could be everything from the lights have gone out to the fact we've been ransomware 
So those kind of things uh, are, I think need to get done and need to get in regular basis. And also finally go out there and get some companies to test your resilience. And that's why we have our IBM X-Force teams that are hired or those, those hackers that can go in there and test inside or outside how resilient you are. Well, I know we're going to talk about resilience in our next segment. Um, you, you mentioned respond now. So what do I need to consider with response? This besides not paying ransom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, certainly um, it's having a plan. You know, it's certainly having playbooks. And you have to have playbooks that you understand, that are fresh, that are relevant, that you've primed. Uh, in other words, you've kept them up to date and you've practiced them. And practice, practice, practice. You know, I ran covert operations at CSIS and um, very much in, in the area. We never did anything without survey, 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 and then survey again. In other words, be completely immersed in what you need to get done before you actually do it so that you have that muscle memory, that you have that ability to respond. And so, um, again, it doesn't, doesn't have to be big, it does, but it has to be better than the back of a napkin. And it certainly should be one that's professionally prepared, ideally. And that's where, again, we, uh, you know, in our, we have this instant response and intelligence service program that people can subscribe to uh, as a retainer. It's very inexpensive, and it gives them the ability to have a number to call if something goes bad. There's the response right there. We will get you back. We will get you back online ASAP and fix the problem. And we, you can use some proactive, uh, we call these proactive units. You can also take some of that money if you invest, almost like an insurance policy, and um, accrue the benefit right away by engaging in proactive activities such as building a playbook and testing it out and so on. And on that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking with Ray Boisvert from IBM Security Expert. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. 
Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with security expert Ray Boisvert. Ray, great second segment. Um, you mentioned something in there about artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence. Um, I just wanted to touch on something because there, right now I believe there's a TV show, you know, uh, AI or something like that, that makes it seem as though AI has its own mind, it's doing its own thing. Are there any concerns people have about using any kind of AI for that, you know, the way Hollywood portrays AI? Well, think of AI as uh, another fairly common reference term around machine learning. So essentially you're training through these neural networks um, software to perform certain tasks, to do certain things, to recognize. Uh, Maybe the most ubiquitous example is image recognition, right? Photo recognition. Most of us have access to something on our desktop or phone and whether using an Android device or an iPhone and you've got uh, facial recognition enabled and suddenly all of your images of involving your family, your sons and daughters and spouses and others um, you know, are easily found. Those, those are all very simple examples of AI and uh, very uh, non-threatening, uh, although not without challenges because, you know, there's been controversies around uh, um, policing and investigative agencies using uh, facial recognition. And so on that point, the only thing I'll say there is that sometimes there has been concern around the inherent biases around the, the algorithms, the software as, as they've been developed. Because, of course, if you train it using certain types of, if not this, then that sort of thing. In other words, you go through a segmentation of images or, or processes and it's trained to recognize certain things. Um, it could end up having uh, um, outputs that are erroneous and are not as clear or not as precise as they should be. That's the simple stuff. So um, machine learning, though, is also a very effective tool. I mentioned uh, in our previous segments around this idea of helping the defenders. So to be able to sort out the overflow of threat-related alerts in their system. So those that are using uh, IBM Watson, we have been highly successful in our, we call this security orchestration um, and automation and response. So the SOAR approach, so this ability to orchestrate, in other words, your AI is your augmented intelligence is smart enough to recognize certain things and not only just identify and point to it, it actually takes actions against it. And it does that in an automated way. So it's actually, it's, it's done in a way that's coordinated, hence the orchestration. It's automated. In other words, it's autonomous. It does this thing and it deals with it. So it's responsive. And that's been very, very helpful, especially now in a world where we're moving into where the traditional perimeter, security perimeter around a you know, building. Think of it in a real physical world around a fence around a building. And, and in the last 20 years, there's been a lot around firewalls and things around your your, your business network and so on. And now that we're, we're dispersed, our workforce dispersed, our security teams are dispersed quite often, uh, we have to reimagine what that looks like. So endpoint 
detection and response becomes very important. Now that we move into the world of 5G, that issue of having these little, you know, computing uh, on the edge, or in other words, a lot of computing will take place where the sensors are. That could be in a vineyard on the edge of a field. It could be on the, on the bottom of a, of a uh, metal pressing machine, uh, or it could be in an aircraft, right, uh, or in a brand new automobile. All these things are producing tele- telemetry, and all these, all these things need AI to be able to absorb them and deal with them. So those are good things. The bad side, though, if you keep those examples in your mind, is that threat actors or adversaries are using the same techniques. They're using AI to orchestrate and automate their activities. And that's why malware gets spread. That's why ransomware, quite often, is not targeted. It's spread around everywhere through automation and AI. And But as soon as somebody clicks something, an alert goes back, and they go, aha, we got one, hence phishing. And so they've, they've got themselves somebody who's clicked on the link and now they've got a toehold in a network or on a device. Well, for me, if I get an email from someone I don't know, I just instantly hit delete. I don't even open it anymore because there's just no, too much good. too much out there. <laughs> good advice. No, for sure. And if people, you know, 80% of this challenge in cybersecurity is what we call basic hygiene. And those are having the fundamentals, the security team or the one person, or maybe in a smaller company or organization, it's just the data administrator or the IT person. Uh, they have to make sure that they they're managing all their vulnerabilities. And there's another kind of service, of course, that we we help our clients with uh, through our programs, is making sure that you've identified all your vulnerabilities because nobody's perfect, no organization has covered everything, and then making sure you do all the patching of your updates on your software, making sure that users are well educated, and they know not to click these things. So those all fit in as part of that pattern. Well, I, I know with the last client I work with, they, uh, they used to send out emails to the staff, making it seem as though they were um, legitimate, you know, uh, every so often. And uh, you had an option of, you know, clicking a button that says, you know, this is a phishing attempt or something. And if you got it right, you got a message saying, thank you very much. You know, you're, you know what's going on. You know what to do. And if you <laughs> opened up a link... And it, you got a big email saying, no, you need to go back and learn more about what's going on. Read this policy. You know, so internally they were they were doing it that way rather than waiting for an external source to send in an email, you know, oh, for and, sure. and, and, and have something happen. No, now, absolutely. Uh, top practice to optimize security. Now, I know um, we've only got about 10 minutes left. So um, can you quickly talk about one of the headings you had in there? Because I was interested to know what, what you meant by this. Um, compliance-based, no more. What did you mean by that? Well, we've had some success in tuning up organizations around standards and having compliance. Uh, now, compliance has existed since probably the modern days of, um, of finance and certainly around um, investments and investment strategies and, um, you know, understanding where, where's the value, how do, you, how do you measure value and how do you protect that value? Well, one way is, of course, to have certain compliance rules. And they sometimes they're as basic as a certain audit, uh, fiduciary and others. Um, and then increasingly in the world of cyber, it's been around um, compliance to certain standards, ISO standards, for example, NIST standards. There's a number of standards out there, uh, governments issue standards, uh, even subnational jurisdictions like in Canada, we have ITSG, for federally we have different provinces have their own. And so these are great. Now they give you a focus, they give you a bar to reach for. 
and they they help level uh, the playing field, but also raise all boats around the same time if people are compliant. But what happens, and this is again the you know good intentions um, and unfortunately perverse effects or outcomes sometimes is that people become so laser focused on compliance, they just forget about the fundamentals of what is good risk management because you can't turn yourself off. In other words, you can't unplug yourself from from engagement and communications and connectivity. Um, so how do you become better and smarter at being far more uh, risk-based? And then the risk, is it quantified or is it is sort of, is it around just the, the, the qualities or of a certain material or is it around the, the quantification of, in other words, the financial value of something? And increasingly that movement's gone to this issue of this quantification. And in other words, can we put a price, can we actually better understand our risks and therefore better understand our risk appetite if we can put a price tag around what is that issue here? In other words, we know where the value is in our own organization. We know where the quality is. And then the question from there extrapolating forward is then if we were denied access to that, if the confidentiality was adversely affected or the integrity of our system was was put at, put at risk, um, what does that cost us? And in Canada right now, in fact, IBM's done uh, several studies. We produce many every year. And one that caught uh, my attention and got a lot of attention here in the media was the uh, cost of a cyber breach. And that cost of a cyber breach done with the Ponemon Institute was very clear. Right now, it's almost $6 million Canadian uh, for the average cost of a cyber breach, which is pretty significant, which would be in the range, of, I'm going to say about, I don't know, uh, close to, say, close to uh $4 million, uh, $4.5 million so, U.S. So is, is that so for small, medium, large, or just average overall? Uh, that's an aggregate, yes. That's just uh, overall. Okay. That could be crippling for a small or medium company. Well, it certainly would be, and it certainly goes back to the old thing about prevention is far better than the cure, um, and it certainly makes the point that um, um, mitigating risks up front uh, sometimes could appear costly, but when you consider the alternative – which is remediation, um, it's, uh, there's, no, there's no comparison. Um, and you can't put a dollar value on reputation. And for many companies, especially for medium and small companies, and a lot of studies have borne this out that more than half of them are gone within three years of the cyber breach. Now, I know we've only got a few minutes left, so I'm just warning, you're, the last thing you talked about in your presentation was achieving resilience. And I think we've only got four minutes, so because <laughs> time flies. <laughs> so can you take three minutes of that and kind of give us a really high level of what you mean by achieving resilience? Well, job one or the first factor moving forward is having situational awareness. And now we're talking about threat intelligence, having good, having rich, having very wide varieties of threat intelligence. But then you got to find a way to enrich that. And this is part of the thing around cognitive and around uh, the, the ability or the advantages of AI. And so with that is be able, if you can understand, you know, who might go after your information, what sort of things they might do, uh, might give you some insights around when and where that might occur and what sort of things are going to be vulnerable. Once that part's organized in a way, I, I would think resilience next is achieved around Who's touching your data? Who's touching your network? And I mean both inside and out. And we can't forget about the risks around insider threats. Some organizations have forgotten about those lessons. Um, and it, it, it involves a lot. There's a lot of studies 
that indicate sometimes up to 60% of uh, the breaches have involved insiders. Now, the vast majority of those have been unwitting accomplices. In other words, people just clicked a link they didn't mean to undermine the organization, but it brought it into a bad place. But nevertheless, sometimes people will betray the trust of the organization or the institution. It happens. And so um, you have to get that part right. Therefore, you have to look around and think about how do you control the privileges and the access to that network all the time? And then when people really think that through a bit and then they start extending outward, then you realize, oh, we have all these contractors. We have all these terms. We have, um, we have people who come in uh, who are um, casual staff. Uh, we have supply chains. Uh, we have vendors. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And then, of course, we have people working everywhere. We were talking earlier in the age of a pandemic. So we have multiple devices, including bring your own device to work, which brings a whole bunch of problems in itself. And so um, the issue of authentication, digital trust becomes the next part of that. Um, Thirdly, then, is just, again, it goes back. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep on coming back to this idea that we're now in the world of uh, data is a blessing and a curse. AI is so important. Cognitive needs to drive our business thinking. And it's about getting insights, insights out of all the stuff we own. Most of the indicators of compromise are already available to the organization. They just can't see them because they're not leveraging AI successfully. They're also not seeing new business opportunities and are not seeing other types of vulnerabilities or other problems or opportunities because they're not properly analyzing the data. So that's, a, that's an issue in itself. And of course, they're, they're, they're not able to respond to all those multitudes of threats without having access to the insights derived from, from AI. And then I think it's finally, it's this idea that we're all moving to a whole new world and that's called cloud. And cloud provides a ton of other benefits as well to be able to have the agility necessary to operate from anywhere, to have your data available with lower latencies and people be able to access more things and great in your clients and your customers. But now it also provides incredible number of security benefits to that that can be woven into it if, again, if it's done right. Architecting it, the services that, and we at IBM Security have a huge services piece that we help clients not only understand their environments and get the threat intelligence part right and what's the right uh, cognitive piece, but also around designing what, what, should, what do you need to do to better understand your vulnerabilities and to better understand what that journey to cloud needs to look like to do it securely and fast. And then that brings me to another point that I'll stop. Right, I've got one minute left. One minute left, yeah, Ray. <laughs> is, 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 is applications. Everybody, we're all building apps. DevSecOps, in other words, securing your, your, your applications as you develop them. That gets you to this new point in this new, better place. And on that note, we've come to the end of our show. Ray, thanks so much. Um, you've given a lot of uh, uh, good information here on cyber, especially that you know that seventy billion number just still freaks me out. That's that's staggering that number. Um, but thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, Alex, it's my pleasure, and it's great to talk about things that matter to people, and that's uh, data and security. Yeah, you know, uh, you, to to go right back to the beginning, you know, we're no longer fighting our wars on land, air, or sea. We're now fighting it, you know, um, through the airwaves and, uh, you know, through our phones and for our uh, our own uh, consciousness almost, you know, for to sure. get people to and believe what big, we want. So. And, and there's this indivisibility between our personal privacy and security. Yeah, yeah. So thank you once again. I really do appreciate your time. 
And everybody that's listening out there, you know, if there's a topic you want, please feel free, send me an email or uh, talk about a product or service. Please feel free, send me an email. I get you information. Thanks to everyone at Stone Road. And in the meantime, everybody, stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.